We often think the Bible tells moralistic stories about models of good behavior. In fact, it tells complicated stories about human weakness and evil. The story in Genesis about Sarah, Abraham's wife, is one of these true-to-life stories. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, and see what we can learn from Sarah about struggling with infertility, about a woman's beauty in the real world, and about catfights in the home. Back in the 70s or in the 80s, you had Friends. It was the big show that was the popular show. You had a bunch of single people that lived together in the city and all the intrigue that they had with that. And Jennifer Aniston was the big wonder, new, young, beautiful girl. She had that American dream. She ended up marrying Brad Pitt who at the time was the young, incredibly handsome guy that swept every woman off their feet. And you had beauty and beauty linked together, but they didn't produce any kids. You had Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Angelina Jolie, and Brad Pitt played in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is kind of a weird story. We have two assassins that are ended up married to one another, and it's actually a, a kind of a paradigm of how sometimes our marriages can turn into that we're trying to kill each other. And you all know the pop culture, if you follow it at all, Brad Pitt ended up, because his relationship with Jennifer Aniston was over, he ended up marrying Angelina Jolie, another beauty united with beauty, only this time we didn't have infertility. Suddenly they were adopting kids all over the world, and that's become part of the pop culture. And born-again believers are entering into the tremendous opportunity to reach out and adopt kids. But then Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt had their own children. Angelina Jolie became pregnant, and she gave birth to kids. And now, every time you see them, they've got kids everywhere, right? All tagging behind them. Now, this week, if you look at the cover of Time, you have beauty, Angelina Jolie, but the threat of death. Beautiful woman, but in her family background, she lost her mom. Her mom in her late 50s died of breast cancer. And so now, because of genetic testing, we can find out in a woman whether there is going to be a great propensity. And now the whole culture is debating the pros and cons of how a woman, when she knows information, how she takes preventative steps. And we're faced with this gorgeous, beautiful woman, but she was under the threat of cancer, and she had to take radical steps in order to heal that. All of these themes, a woman's beauty, the power that it gives her, and yet the threat of death. The idea of all the trig back and forth, struggling to have kids, and that's a journey that some of you ladies have been on. What in the world does the Bible have to do with all those kinds of things? To make matters worse, as we begin to study the life of the second woman on our series on the influence of a godly woman, we talked about Eve, the mother of us all, All the way until chapter 11 of Genesis, we really don't have a major female figure again until we come to Sarah. And the big issue that's raised with Sarah, if you've only studied the New Testament, you study 1 Peter chapter 3, and Sarah is laid out to you as the ultimate example of godliness. And you all need to be like Sarah. Anybody ever heard that message? Yeah. So what would you think when you read the Apostle Peter on Sarah and it says that she is a godly woman, she called her husband, her master, showed deep respect for him. If you're a feminist, you go up and you're really all uptight about how in the world we'll get Sarah be an example there. 
But you also, if you're more traditional, you feel like, yeah, that's really a good example. But the conflict is, hey, this woman is godly. How in the world can we call her godly? Because a lot of time she's unbelieving. She lies and she enters into lies with her husband. She also manipulates her husband. And that's one of the things that I want you to begin to wrestle with. Because almost all of you and almost all your friends that you're going to meet this week are thoroughly convinced that what we're about this morning when we worship God, when we serve Jesus, we're all good people, good moral people. We come together and learn good moralistic stories about how to be good boys and girls. And then we go out into the real world and find out, hey, things aren't so good. So how do all these good Sunday school stories about Sarah and how beautiful and godly she is, where does it connect when I'm wrestling in the marketplace with the power and threat of beauty and how beauty can be an incredibly important thing for a woman and yet it can also produce the threat of rape and even death at times. That's the world that we live in. What about in our marriages when we're infertile and we desperately want to have a child? What does God have to do with that? And so I notice as I work with my sisters in Christ, there can be a disconnect between what we think God is talking about, this beautiful, godly woman, Sarah, and what's really happening in the real world. One of the things we're trying to do in our church families, we study God's word, is to get you to open up the word of God and actually read it for yourselves. It's a terrible thing, but a lot of people never do it. And if you're going to understand the story of Sarah, then you need to start at the beginning of the story of Sarah, and you need to read all the way through, which is something you can do, and hopefully I'll whet your appetite to do that, and you can put together Sarah from the first time she's introduced in the redemptive writings of Scripture all the way till when Abraham buries her, and Mary and I have actually been to her tomb and seen where Abraham and Sarah are buried. It's still a holy site right to this day in the city of Hebron. Turn your Bibles, we begin the story of Sarah, and we're faced right away with a problem that probably some of my sisters in Christ right here this morning have wrestled with, the problem of it. God makes a promise, but it doesn't look like he's coming through. In fact, you go for years in your life, and God's promise doesn't fit the hard fact. So God makes a promise, but what about the hard fact? Any of you ever said, yeah, God made a promise, but I'm really wrestling with the hard facts of my life because God isn't coming through on his promise. As you look at the beginning of Sister Sarah's story, the first time you're introduced to her is right after the story of the Tower of Babel. And so in order to understand where you are in God's story, you need to understand that after the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their family move out from the flood. They have one really positive command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and spread out all over this beautiful planet. How many think that's a good command? Having good families, big families, being able to have lots of room to live on. But human beings decide they're not going to do that. They come to this beautiful plain between the Tigris and Euphrates River. They figured out how to put straw and muck together and to make bricks. And they say, hey, we can use our technology. We're going to build skyscrapers like New York City. This is the first Empire State Building. 
and we're going to build a building. We're going to put our name on it. That way, when we die, people remember us. We're the people that built the tower that reached to the heaven. God had to come down, which is Israel's satirical response. Human beings are thinking we're going to reach to the heaven. God has to get down on his knees just to be able to look at what the little creatures are doing. And then God changes their language, which becomes the beginning of Wycliffe Bible translators. And it spread all over the world, Okay. So a lot of people miss this. The big question of the story of the Tower of Babel, which is the end of Genesis chapter 11, is what's God going to do with the wandering nation? There's some of you this morning that don't really care about the wandering nation. Some of you are sitting there going, hey, why in the world are we going to Colombia? Dave, why did you go to South Korea? Why do we want to give money to Ramesh Richard's organization, REITs, to bring pastors from all over the world here to Dallas so that they can teach God's word. Why in the world do I need to care about Chinese and Burmese and Sengalis and Indians? And why do I need to care about all these different people groups? Don't we have enough problem here? Well, if you're going to have the heart of God, you need to understand that God has a heart for every single nation. The story of the Bible is the incredible redemptive creator God that made a promise that he would send a great deliverer that would destroy the curse of death. He would crush the head of the serpent, and eventually he would set up a kingdom that would really be like the Garden of Eden. That's the redemptive story of the Bible. And the tension in the story is, at the end of the Tower of Babel, everybody's spreading out all over the world, and it looks like God's program has ended, that these people will just wander around until they die in a meaningless existence, They'll have children, but they won't know about the great serpent slayer that's going to come and deliver us from the curse of death. It's really a dark period. But then the Lord calls Abraham. And all of you have heard about the call of Abraham if you've studied in Sunday school at all. But Father Abraham becomes the father of God's promised people. And the rest of the story of the Old Testament is about the Israelites that Abraham produced. And the woman that he produced them with was Sarah, and in order to fulfill the key verse in Scripture that there's going to be a seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, what's a basic prerequisite? If you're going to have the seed of the woman, ladies, what do you need to have? Pregnancy. Everybody tell me. If you're going to have the seed of the woman, you have to have pregnancy. So as you begin the story of Sister Sarah, turn to Genesis chapter 11. And in the boring genealogy, look at chapter 11, verse 27. Everybody got it? This is what Terah produced. This is going to be the story of Terah. And when you read that little phrase in Genesis, that's the way Moses tells you what his next story is going to be. When he uses that little phrase, he looks back to the story that came before that, which is why I told you the story of the Tower of Babel. Now he's going to tell you what Terah produced to help meet the need of these wandering nations. Terah became the father of Abram. Anybody ever heard of Abram? All of you have, okay? But Abram had another brother named Nahor and another brother named Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Now, this is not what I'm going to speak to you on today, but I want you to learn to do this. When Moses introduces you to that, who's going to be one of the key characters in our story? This is the first time you learn about him. And he's Abraham's nephew, okay? One of the things I want to do is to equip you during the week so that you can hear God's voice. So you put in your notebook, if you're taking notes in your notebook, or some of you that are the old-fashioned, you write down the book, you write, Lot, Abraham's nephew. You don't know anything about him except he's Abraham's nephew. 
But wait, in a good storyteller, they just introduced you to you, and it should rage. What's this guy going to do? And there's going to be lots of stories about Lot. While his father Terry was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. So Abram knows the trauma of losing a brother. And in the land of his birth, Abram and Nahor both married. And then Abraham, Abraham's wife was princess. One of my favorite names that I use romantically with Mary is she is my princess. Where did I get that from? Well, I'm not very creative. I was a Hebrew student, so I learned Sarai means princess. By the way, Sarah is just another form on that and means pretty much the same thing, princess, okay? So his, he's married to this woman named Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, all of that is you just skip over that because if it's not your name, you go, who cares? But if you were Iska, you would, when you get to heaven, you'd really be glad that your name was recorded in the word of God, right? Amen? And what it's showing you is that these are real historical accounts. They're not just made-up, fictitious fairy tales. It's laying this groundwork. In most cultures of the world, they care about all your relatives. As Americans, we're very individualistic. But I want you to know that we need to learn, we need to care about our families. We need to care about our church family. And the Bible, by giving you all these individual names, is saying you're connected in a family structure. You're connected with other people, especially your own relatives. And so one of the areas we need to ask all the Spirit to do is to realize that our families are important. Our spiritual family is most important. But it tells us in the next line the tension in the story. Now, Sarai was barren. What does it mean that she was barren? It meant that she had no children. So that's going to be a major thing. At the beginning, when Sarai is first introduced, we know that she is married to Abram, but she's infertile. So some of you ladies that have gotten married, and in the traditional story, you're supposed to be able to get pregnant, but you struggle. One of the things you need to wrestle with and understand is that your Heavenly Father writes a lot of stories about infertility. So that'll be one of the things that we're going to be talking about in the life of Sister Sarah. And there's a tremendous conflict in this story because in chapter 12, which most of you know really well, it's called the Abrahamic Covenant. It's where God calls Abram. If you look at chapter 12, it says, Then the Lord God said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the story is telling us who is going to be the father that continues the redemptive line that produces the great serpent slayer in Genesis 3.15. It has to be a son of Abraham, if you look a little bit further, if you look at verse 7 of chapter 12, the Lord appeared to Abram after he goes to the land of Canaan. And he comes, he travels to the land, he comes to Shechem. The Canaanites are in the land at the time, so there's the threat of the Canaanites that we're going to have as a major story, especially when we get to the book of Joshua. Now it says the Lord appeared to Abram, he says, to your seed. That word offspring in your English text is the word seed. And in Hebrew, it's the same word that God used in Genesis 3.15. That's why I'm telling that the Old Testament is the unfolding of who in the world is going to produce the seed. 
And the seed stands for the one individual great male serpent slayer. It also is a plural term that means all the descendants of the seed of the woman that choose to worship the great I am. And hopefully you're one of that group, that you joined the seed of the woman. That's what the story is about. It says, though, that to your seed I will give this land. And he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now the problem here is, if Abram is going to produce the seed, and he, in fact, if you look at chapter 15, the Lord increases the stakes, Abraham's going to have children like the stars in the sky. Now, one basic fact, if you're going to have children like the stars in the sky, and your name is Abram, and you're married to Sarai, what's one of the things that has to happen? They have to become fertile and produce a child. Now, that's your major tension in this story, because guess what? Sarai, we learned, is barren. So one of the very first things you're going to have to wrestle with if you're going to father the Lord, you ladies, sometimes the Lord's going to make promises to you. One of the really big promises is that we believe that we're going to live together with Jesus forever and ever. That because we done it, he died on the cross for us, because he rose again, we can have eternal life. That that's really worth living for. It's really worth dying for. It's worth living your life for. It's worth studying God's word every day. Those are the incredible promises that God has made us. And yet as we live our life, sometimes the hard fact is we're going to have friends that don't believe that at all. And they have pre- babies like anything. No problem at all. They have safe deliveries. They don't have any struggle. And they don't even know Jesus. So some of the deepest longings that we have, we have unbelieving people that could care less about Jesus. They have babies like crazy. And some of my sisters, sisters that really know Christ are trying to follow him. One of the really deepest longings of their heart is they want to have a child. But the hard fact is that medically it's just not happening. And they go through all kinds of struggle in that. What I want you to know is that Sarah's teaching you that in the redemptive story of the Bible, that as a woman, sometimes it's going to look like God's promise is countering the hard facts. Now, how are you going to react to them? In other words, one of the basic things of Abraham's life is he's going to produce children like the stars in the sky. Sarah is in a culture much more than our own where the worth of a woman as a wife is to produce a son, and she's not able to do. And so it would be really easy for her. One of the things she's going to wrestle with in the flow of this story is you're going to be wrestling with her, where is the great I am? Will the great I am really come through for me? And one of the big decisions that all of you sisters in Christ are going to make, that all you ladies are going to make, is will you believe the I am when the hard facts of your life aren't lining up with what he promised? And you need to wrestle with how are you going to react to that? Now, how do you react? So we, we got the hard fact versus the promises of God. The second thing I want you to look at is Abraham arrived in the promised land, and I would expect the story to go something like this. God blessed him in the promised land. Abraham obeyed the Lord. He's married to Sarah, and so they arrived. They built an altar. They worshiped the Lord. They proclaimed to others that they're going to worship the Lord. Abraham and Sarah go into their tent. They make love. 
Sarah has a pregnancy test and finds out that she's going to give birth. And nine months later, we have the birth of a beautiful baby boy, and he's the promised seed. Isn't that the story you'd expect? And that's what some of you are expecting in life. I want to share something with you. Sometimes life goes like that. Usually, it does not. That's what these Old Testament stories. Paul told us that these stories were written to be an example for us. So a famine breaks out in the land. In the land of promise, there's a horrible, devastating famine, and they're not in a culture where they can run down to Walmart or they can go to Whole Foods and they can find foods been shipped in from all over the United States, literally all over the world. Back in the ancient culture, when the local farmers had a drought, like, for example, in the ancient days, if you lived in West Texas right now and all the crops were failing and it was, and it was a drought, you're done. You got to travel. You'd have to come east and find out where it rains. So you need to enter into that culture. So notice as we begin in verse 10 of chapter 12, now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt. This is a foreshadowing the the future descendants of Abraham are going to go down to Egypt with Jacob. This is the first time they go down to Egypt, and one of the signals in Genesis is when you go down somewhere, that's not a good thing. When you leave the land of promise, that's not a good thing. Beautifully written, powerful story that's foreshadowing stories we're going to have. But the reason he went down is because there was a famine in the land. And he asked the Lord. He had a time of prayer. He had a time of altar, time of intimacy with the Lord. He and Sarah got together. They prayed about how should we meet this famine need. And the Lord told them that they go down into Egypt. How many of you have ever read that in your text? Never read that. I just made all that up. See, that's what they should have done. And that's what's implied in the story. Abraham just built an altar in the heart of the Holy Land, right in the center of the Holy Land, and he called upon the Lord. But suddenly he's facing drought. He's facing a famine, and his, what's going to be his response? And the Lord wants to talk to you this morning. When you face a famine, like when your business is rising really high as a husband and wife, and it's really easy as a wife to be right there, you know, you're all working on the business together, what happens when the business crashes? What happens when you suddenly can't be the person that's really acknowledged by all your friends as the one that keeps the church going, is able to give bountifully to the Lord? What do you do when you got a famine, when you lose all of your financial well-being? And even in this case, you're even threatened with physical death. This is a big crisis. And Abram and Sarah, in this case, they don't talk to the Lord. They just go down in Egypt, which is a great human plan because Egypt doesn't worry about famines because at that time the Russians hadn't built the big dam on the Nile River and every year the Nile would flood and bring beautiful topsoil that would all along the banks of the Nile, there would be the beautiful agricultural, incredibly fertile topsoil that made Egypt the breadbasket of the ancient world even up until Roman times in the time of Jesus. Okay, so that's part of the story. They're going down into Egypt because Egypt's not dependent upon the rain. They have the floods of the Nile, and and it's raining up where the Nile begins. The Nile's doing fine, so they go down into Egypt. Now, we've got a real crisis in the story. He said, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, he says, princess, that's what her name means, princess, I know that you're a beautiful woman. I know you are. Now, husbands, I want you to learn something. That's a great thing to tell your wife. 
Those of you that are courting a woman, if she's the one and you're younger, one of the ways that you reach a woman is you speak upon her heart. Your wife needs to hear every single day, you're a beautiful woman. And by the way, husbands, if you don't tell your wife she's beautiful, Satan will guarantee to bring someone into your wife's life who will tell her she's a beautiful woman. And it's blowing marriages apart in our culture, right in our church. So this text knows what it's talking about. And so far, Abraham's doing pretty good. Sarah, I know you're a beautiful woman. That's a positive statement. How do you know that's a positive statement? Because when you read the Song of Solomon later on in God's story, you're going to have a man that knows how to reach the heart of a woman, and he says she's a beautiful woman. And he describes her beauty in very beautiful poetry. So as I put together this story of the Bible, I find out that this is a major theme. And some of you might feel that, well, a woman's beauty is just a bunch of baloney. It's the way that men hold us down. We don't need to care anything about that. And so we think that, man, woman's beauty has no power at all in the culture. That's fine. You're going to make it for about 10 years in our culture, and you can wear your combat boots, and you can forget all about the way you look. And then when you grow a little bit older, you're going to suddenly realize, hey, for hundreds upon hundreds of years, this has power in a culture. That's why in the flow of American culture, all the women that raised their little girls, that they didn't need to care anything about their physical beauty, now their little girls are going to Kohl's every time to get the best price on the latest fashion because the culture swings. The Bible presents you to things that are part of our human nature that will never change. And Abraham is doing good. Sarah is a gorgeous woman, but beauty has its dangers. And Abraham's very well aware of the danger. Notice what it says. It says, you're a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let, me, let you live. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So what's your response when there's a famine and your husband asks you to lie to save him? See, this is a good story. Those are hard issues, okay? And by the way, this is going to be a standard procedure for Abraham and also for Abraham's boys. They all love to tell this. They tell this lie. Now, back in those days, you're, if you're at the university at this time, your professor's going to say, you see, they're, they're in an incestuous relationship. The Bible is a really dirty, terrible book, and that's wrong. In fact, it's contradictory because in the book of Leviticus, it's going to tell you that you can't marry your sister. And then you're going to lose your faith and turn away from God. And you're going to go down to 6th Street in Austin, in Texas, and you're going to get drunk and be immoral because all your Sunday school stuff in the Bible was untrue. Before you do that, this is 600 years before the time of Moses. If you know anything about genetics, the reason we can't lock things in too close genetically is because there's a lot of deleterious genetic diseases. All of you know that that raise animals, that you do it with your herds if you're a cattleman. You try to lock things in by having inbreeding. But when you lock things in too close, then you start having genetic diseases, and you go back and forth. That's all dependent upon the fact that over time, deleterious mutations produce genetic defects in us, and if we're too close in relatives, we increase the probabilities 
of genetic disease. Those of you in the medical field, am I right? But before, in more primitive times, and I can show you in every culture in the world, in more primitive times, they didn't have as deleterious genetic structure. So they can marry closer. In fact, in Abraham's time, one of the ways that they locked their family loyalty in is they do marry pretty close. By the time of Moses, things are shifting, and in the ancient world, you start having all kinds of laws against incest, and our heavenly daddy wanted to protect us. So contrary to what we think, he wasn't being arbitrary. He gave very strong laws against the Canaanite practice, which was often incestuous, and Egyptian practice, which especially among their, loyal, their royalty would be incestuous, the Lord in the laws of Mount Sinai speaks against incest. But this is an earlier period. So you need to read the story really carefully. And one thing that I want you to learn in our church family is that I have tons of my precious friends that turn away from Jesus because they think there's such a terrible blunder in the Bible, and they don't read the story very carefully. So that's what we're trying to do is prepare all of your kids and prepare your grandkids and prepare for you to read the story really carefully. So what should Sarah do? Well, the story implies, like, you're not supposed to bear false witness. And all of you can fudge a little bit because this is what you do. It's really not a lie. It's just kind of a lie. How many of you have ever done that? Now, how many of you think that's really a good way to live? Every one of you this morning, you're thinking about how you make decisions in life. Now, you all see there piously, and you go, oh, no, I think it was wrong. And you say, naughty, naughty, Abraham and Sarah, they should have never done this. You guys do this like crazy. As soon as we put you under pressure, you lie. Like, I find, like, if Mary asked me, have you taken the garbage out? No. That's not what I say. I say, oh, yeah, honey, I took the garbage out. And what I mean by that, is, I've often told you, I'm going to take the garbage out. Why don't I just say, honey, I haven't taken the garbage out yet, because I don't want to face Mary's wrath. My first response, and as the Holy Spirit works on my heart, I'm trying to get much, much better at just telling the truth. No half-truth. You know, and no fudging in my mind saying, no, it's going to happen. That's lying. Don't do that. Destroy relationship. In this case, it looks like the half-truth is really a good plan. Because Abraham arrived down in Egypt, the Egyptians did see that she was beautiful, which is exactly what Abraham said. It says that when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. She was taken into his palace, and he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. So in this case, the famine need has been met. Rather than Abraham starving to death, he becomes a very wealthy man. And this is all because of the beauty of his wife. And she's been taken. It says that she's been taken into the court of Pharaoh. What could be better than this? Things are working out really good. So some of you are sitting here this morning and go, man, my living this way, it's going really, really good. That's when it's really dangerous. Now, where is Sarah? As a husband, husbands, if your wife, is in a great big palace, if your wife is over at the great Gatsby's great mansion and she's not at your house, is that a good thing or a bad thing if you're the legitimate husband? See, that's how the story is. Jay Scott Fitzgerald, he's Roman Catholic. He knows the Bible really well. He's telling you an old story from the Bible in very new modern times. The great Gatsby is about a woman 
that's in the wrong house at the wrong time. It's a lot more than that, but it's this old story. This is not a good thing. Pharaoh can do whatever he wants to with Sarah. Now, what happens if Pharaoh unites with Sarah and Sarah becomes pregnant and produces a nice Egyptian Pharaoh child? Is that a good thing or a bad thing for God's redemptive story? It's a bad thing. That's what I want you to understand. That's not a good thing. That's really a bad thing. And it's really dangerous. In fact, if that would have happened, there would have been no Bethlehem birth. Now, there wasn't a chance that that would happen because God's sovereign, but he writes a really powerful, tensionful story. So what does the God of heaven do? It says that he afflicted Pharaoh's household with a serious disease because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Get out of here. Then Pharaoh gave order about Abram to his wife, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. So this very first episode in the Sarah story, we're raised with two issues. When the hard facts contradict the promises of God, what are we going to do? And Sarah's going to be wrestling with that. And as we pick up our story next time, we're going to find out that she comes up with a really great human plan. And you can read that in the next section of your notes that we'll cover next week, that you start having Sarah come up with a great plan. But this human idea, a little bit of human deceit, a little bit of human deceit, a little bit of human lying, it looks like it really works good, but it jeopardizes the whole plan of God. So we need to ask ourselves, if you're a woman this morning, the Holy Spirit's talking to you, and one of the things he's saying is, as a woman, Sarah is represented to you as a godly woman, that you need to follow her example. And some of you ladies are saying, well, I can never become an example to younger women. I could never become a model because look at the stuff that I've done. Look at some of the mistakes that I made. Look at some of the lies that I told. Look at some of the jeopardizing situations, the compromising situations that I've gotten into. God's word is telling you this morning that he's not telling a story where he only uses good, moral, exemplary people. That's what religion tells you. God's redemptive story says, no, I use people who in the flow of their life, as life unfolds, We find out in the crunch of life as they work through a lot of struggles that at the core of their being, they trust God. At this point in Sarah's life, she did follow her husband to a place she had no idea where she was going. So she's starting to show me, I believe. Like she doesn't stay in Ur, she leads with Abraham. That's part of the story. So she's a woman of faith. But she's also a woman that's really wrestling with a tough issue in the ancient world, and this problem of barrenness isn't going to be solved for a long, long time. As a church family, we need to really care for women's issues. Over the years in our church family, with my sisters in Christ and with brothers in Christ, this has been a really tough thing. Sometimes the Lord chooses, like in our own church family, we've seen over the years that the Lord can meet the area of barrenness with adopting kids, and that's become a really powerful thing. Some of you are sitting here as I close, and you're saying, I'm single. I have nothing to do with Abram and Sarah. Oh, yeah, you do. 
If you're a single woman, the Lord is calling you into that, and the Lord isn't providing someone. The Lord wants you to have many spiritual children. He wants you to be connecting with the body of Christ so that you're not barren, so that you're not alone. For example, when we get to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament much later in the story, the Lord is going to deal with the problem of barrenness in this new group of people called the Bride of Christ. He's going to be talking about the blessedness of the gift of singleness. Our Savior himself was single, but does Jesus have a lot of children? How many of you are Jesus' children? And I want us to create a church family. I want you, as you meet with friends, that you have these these deep spirit-given truths so that we don't isolate someone that's single and make them isolated from family life, but we draw them in. So I just gave you some examples of how Sarah's barrenness is a big problem. It's going to continue to be a problem. It's going to trigger the conflict we have the next time we get together. But this morning, we can begin to pray about the problem of barrenness. And I also gave you some ways from the Word of God about the way our Heavenly Daddy might want to meet that need. So some of you need the next few minutes to pray for adoption and pray for those that are struggling to do that. Pray for kids that really need homes. And as part of the evangelical community, we want to be really meeting those needs. The second thing I want you to pray about is, what about the areas where we're deceiving a little bit? What about the area where I fudge? And instead of trusting my existence to God, I take matters into my own hands, and I connive, and I deceive, and I lie. And let's turn away from that deception both as men and women. And let's ask the Lord Jesus to help us become people of truth and help us also, if you have lied and you've gotten in really bad trouble, the story's telling you that the Lord sovereignly takes over things. Like some of you, there's plagues on your life. That's what the story's saying, because you've deceived the Lord and he's struggling with you. Now, not all sin produces sickness, but it can. Maybe we're being plagued Because the Lord is trying to protect us and remind us that all of our conniving is not really, really working to produce God's redemptive grace. So let's bow our heads and spend some time quietly in prayer about that. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just help what I've done the last few minutes just to be the beginning of unraveling the incredible principles and life realities and promises and truth. What we've learned about human existence in the life of Sarah and Abram is not going to change. But what we've learned about you this morning, your power and your sovereign ability to make sure that even when your redemptive promise is jeopardized, you can still come through. I'd ask you, Lord, that you'd bring your redemptive promise into anyone here that's never really opened their heart to Christ for the first time. I pray that you would use our opening your word and their listening to your voice to help them to begin to understand who Jesus is, that he was the ultimate son of Abraham and Sarah, that he was the one that fulfilled the promise. Help us not to lock the power of believing in you even when we're facing hard facts and learning not to fib and not to resort to deception when it looks like you're not coming through. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.